No person has the right to reign on your dreams. لا أحد يمكنه أن يحطم أحلامك. Nadie tiene el derecho de llover sobre tus sueños. Hi, this is Leslie. And this is Diane. And you're listening to Rabiosa Medina Radio. Thank you for tuning in to episode 2, Holding a Red Umbrella During COVID-19, where we will talk about how sex workers have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. So Diane, we recently had a live show, and it was our first time on Instagram. How did you feel when we first started? Yeah, so yes, it was my first time, and I think it was your first time as well, and especially both together. I think it was um, fun trying it out, seeing who tuned in and who's interested in what we have to say. And I think it was a cool way to announce our media project and like why we're doing the podcast, what the name behind it. And yeah, it was overall really fun. And I definitely think we should repeat it again. And so Instagram is a great way to share, you know, what we're talking about in the podcast. And because we can't stream like an hour long podcast on Instagram, I think those Instagram lives are really helpful and fun. Yeah, they're so fun. And you get to engage with people like family, friends, and people just wanting to tune in. So yeah, I think you learn. I think you learn from the process. And it's been very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, I know you mentioned that it's hard to be comfortable in your skin, um, especially when you're starting a new project. Yeah, so I think all of us as teenagers were different than how we are in our 20s now. And um, for sure, like as I definitely developed my personality and uh, my interests definitely in col- in my college years and in my early 20s. And that's when I found who I am and what I love and what I want to dedicate my work to or, you know, interests, hobbies, all of that. And yeah, for sure, I was definitely shyer than now. And um, now I speak up and I'm more confident. And I, I definitely have to say, um, journalism has made me more confident in writing and talking about issues that maybe I wouldn't have spoken about uh, years ago. And yeah, it's something really fun. And I definitely, you know, with supportive peers, like my our professors, especially um, Professor Edie Rubinowitz and Nissa Ree, made me more confident in pursuing journalism and speaking even on an Instagram live or just writing in general. Yeah, both of those teachers that you mentioned are my mentors, and they taught me that sometimes you just got to be yourself and report on what's happening and connect with the people that you are interviewing. Like right now, how we're doing this podcast and we're being ourselves and telling serious stories like like the one that we're going to talk about today. I love that. Yeah, and so I also didn't feel comfortable (laughs) in middle school throughout college. 
And it's when I started writing that I realized that this is something I really want to do. And it's a form of healing. I actually feel like I can, um, like I feel better when it's a bad day or um, when I just want to get my mind off something, when I'm stressed out or I feel anxious. And this project, like I said, is a form of healing. So I was in middle school and I was performing a Day of the Dead performance with my father. And I remember going on stage and singing a song called Kukurukuru Paloma. And it was a song that my grandmother sung to me when I was young, um, just to stop me from crying or feeling anxious. And so I think writing or any form of writing, whether it's like a lyric of a song or a poem or a news report, when you talk about things that you're passionate about, you just instantly notice that it's a form of healing. And yeah, that's how I started becoming confident when I started writing yeah, I mean, that memory with your father and grandma is definitely, definitely a very sweet memory that stays with you forever. And about confidence, confidence is key. If anything, that's like the most important, you know, thing to me, because if you're not confident, then you don't trust yourself. And if you don't trust yourself, then you're afraid of failing and you're not going to be able to do what you love or to pursue a career that you want. And um, yeah, confidence is key. Yeah. Is there a way that you deal with anxiety? Yeah. So the way I deal with anxiety, especially with pressure from like either, you know, too many errands or assignments or projects or, you know, overwhelmed by reporting and the deadlines and everything, I definitely, you know, repeat affirmations to myself to remember that everything's going to be okay and everything is nothing is permanent and this goes for anything a rough day a rough month a rough year you know a rough hour anything um to do with anxiety or worry that's what I normally do I just repeat positive self affirmations and I love listening to music and just reading a good relaxing book um and yeah it's just taking time for myself is definitely key when I'm in an anxious situation. Yeah, especially during this time, it's it's one of those times where everybody needs self-care, but some people can't have that luxury of of chilling at home or reading a book. Yeah, especially with all those, especially with all the stresses right now with the pandemic and, you know, essential workers, people some, you know, lots of people lost their jobs, they don't have income. And um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, there's a lot of tragedies everywhere. But, you know, I'm I'm thankful to be healthy and just quarantining at home. Yeah, Diane, I feel like you can't run <laughs> or take in fresh air like going outside without being profiled for being a woman or especially a woman of color or a person of color in general. I agree. Um. The reason why we agree with this is because we've seen so many stories and killings and murders to do with racial profiling, and people are still in denial, 
And even myself, I just find this really bizarre that people are being killed because of the color of their skin. I just find it really bizarre. And I find it very wrong. I mean, I don't agree with anyone who would think this is right, obviously. But it's really sad. And like, as you mentioned, um, I think we both follow Sean King on Instagram and Twitter. He's a very, very, very famous journalist. And he's an activist. And he's very vocal about tragedies and everything that happens in America that has to do with anything um, to do with like racial profiling or racism. Um, He definitely shares that and we're informed directly. Yeah, and police brutality as well. He's been reporting nonstop on what's happened recently to Ahmad, who was killed by two, um, two police officers. Right. And those police officers officers were a father and son. And um so he was twenty five year old twenty five years old, Ahmad Arbery. He was a twenty five year old unarmed black man who was shot on February twenty third of twenty twenty of this year. And he was walking at one PM in the afternoon in the state of Georgia. And the the more the most bizarre thing also is that those murderers were were arrested months later in the beginning of this month, May, after his killing. Oh, that was horrible. And Sean Keane was um, was helping his mother to get Ahmad justice. Right, and, you know, people were demanding uh, justice for Ahmad, and also his mother was pleading. I, I can't imagine her pain as a mother watching this and witnessing her son dying especially with the video that's shared all over and um another similar case uh similar to Ahmad's story is a 21 year old man named Sean Reed shot in Indianapolis on May 6th so not too long ago and he was driving and was being chased by cops in his vehicle and he was streaming he was doing a live stream on Facebook to you know show people his experience and Unfortunately, his death was shown while streaming. And I think also another thing to know about um, Sean Reed was that he was an active duty airman, and uh, which means he helped and served in the U.S. Army. Yeah, and if you look at the difference of how the police, like the NYPD in New York, how they treat like white people when they're in the parks, and then. <laughs> You see the contrast when they treat Sean Reed or Ahmad, and they can't have moments of peace. I get what you're saying about um, the difference between how the New York Police Department kind of treats those who live on the Upper East Side of New York versus the Lower East Side of New York. And those two, you know, locations in the city are definitely definitely you know different by class and so the I don't know the treatment is definitely showing and especially when it came to social distancing there was a photo or video that Sean King put of you know officers being super friendly to those who are sitting at the park in Upper East Side of New York and then beating up people for not wearing masks or not social distancing properly or whatever their excuse was in the Lower East Side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
again, like people are dying of Corona, people are getting infected. And I can't believe that, you know, people trying to get a peace of mind, taking a walk or driving, they still have to be racially profiled. Yeah. And even thinking about women who are living with abusive partners, the number has increased and no one is really protected. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, vulnerable communities and groups that are being affected disproportionately during this pandemic. And uh, because everyone is being um, affected, not everyone is being affected equally. So it's important to highlight, as you said, um, like domestic violence has been increasing because people are stuck at home. Usually if you want to escape domestic violence, wives or husbands or partners of whoever would um, leave the house to feel kind of better, but now everyone's stuck at home. And sex workers too. That's the topic that we're going to talk about. It's the main topic where sex workers depend on going outside to do work and they need to do they need to have physical contact with their clients and so it's it's really crazy how COVID-19 has affected everyone and for sex workers that that depended on that income they're not getting any COVID-19 COVID-19 relief to pay off anything or they're not getting large loans to uh you know just to survive in this pandemic for sure i think if a sex worker does her work with consent and by choice this is her choice of course or their choice especially if it's underrepresented i think it's interesting how you know there's a lot of cases of sex trafficking around the world and including the united states and we don't see much arrest and we don't see much on the media about you know sex traffickers being arrested or being violated or you know abuse towards them by the police as much as we hear you know towards these sex workers and about the sex workers it's like i said dangerous and they're not considered employees and it's been hard for them to receive any kind of resources and so it's these are all unique topics that I usually don't see in the mainstream media. And so, yeah, uh, as you said, COVID-19 has affected many and has affected many of these sex workers and it affects their work and people are referring to virtual work no matter what it is. <laughs> This definitely causes controversy because not everyone is okay with, you know, having people put their, you know, pictures on the apps or advertisements. And there's just so much to know and learn about the sex working industry because people think that sex work is, you know, a very nasty job. Um, you know, they think anything that's sexual is, you know, they call them names and I mean, sex work is considered illegal or nasty, but it is still a job where women are comfortable giving physical contact uh, to beings and are comfortable with being, you know, sexual and everything. And this is their with their own consent we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so there's just a lot of restrictions to 
keep the virus from spreading and sex workers have depended on online work like OnlyFans. OnlyFans is like almost like Instagram, but instead sex workers post content and they can put a price and those who follow them have to pay to see their content. So we will talk to a guest to explain how sex workers have been affected because of COVID-19 and the current policies that are put in place to prevent sex workers from advertising content to not receiving COVID-19 relief. So we will talk to Phoenix Kalita. Phoenix Kalita is a former sex worker, public speaker, and podcast creator and host for a podcast called Wine Cellar Media. Phoenix is a queer Afro-Latina and survivor of sexual violence and police brutality. She currently lives in the northwest suburb outside of Chicago, the arena where she can speak out against xenophobia, racism, disparities in income distribution, and sex worker rights and human rights. She is also an advocate for speaking on mental health and healthcare access to vulnerable communities in Chicago. So hello, Phoenix. Thank you for talking to us. Before we start, I just wanted to ask you more about yourself and your position or where you're working right now or what you're doing. Sure. Uh, so my name is Phoenix. I am originally from the west side of Chicago. Um, I started in sex work when I was a teenager because I was a teenage mom and have been in and out of the industry ever since. Um, I am currently on the National Board of Directors for Swap USA, uh, which is a 501c3 organization that reaches out to sex workers and tries to uh, both educate and uh, end and reduce stigma, as well as push for decriminalization of sex work and similar type policies. So originally, I had gotten introduced to sex work activism a few years ago, but I'm old, so it was, you know, it was a while ago. But I didn't really feel comfortable in those circles um, because everyone I was seeing was predominantly like cishet white women who um, were making way more money than I was and more money than I would ever make in the sex trade. And so it didn't really feel like an inclusive place for me. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, I was able to get a scholarship from, uh, from SWAP to go to a DC lobbying day. And with that, uh, I thought that event was really amazing because it was a diverse range of sex workers. And there were sex workers there who were trans and sex workers who weren't white and sex workers who were undocumented and uh, sex workers who had disabilities. And, you know, it was just a really inclusive and really diverse event. And so then I started really taking a hard second look at sex worker rights activism and seeing that, you know, the movement has gotten more diverse and that it is, you know, designed for people like me and that people like me do deserve a platform in the sex worker rights movement. And so uh, then I, you know, got closer affiliated with SWAP and now I'm on the national board. So that's kind of how that happened. Um, yeah, just trying to change the face of sex workers' rights to make it more inclusive to more marginalized groups. Yes. So I read the article you wrote for Vice, and uh, I just wanted to ask you about your experience talking to legislators in Capitol Hill. And I know you're very vocal on uh, sex workers' rights. Can you tell me about the experience? So going to Capitol Hill was definitely interesting. I've never um, done any sort of lobbying like that before, but it was a great event overall. It was um, just really productive in terms of being able to talk to legislators so basically the goal of the event was this was after SESTA-FOSTA passed. And so 
the goal was to go there and talk about the side effects of SESTA-FOSTA and how it was hurting different sex work communities. And some, you know, the offices of some lawmakers were very responsive, others weren't. But I think that overall, it was definitely productive for us to go and sort of just uh, have a presence as sex workers, as a united group and saying, you know, you can't pass this type of legislation without us because it's really hurting us, whether you're aware of it or not. And so it was definitely a unique experience. I'm really glad that I went and did that. So and made a lot of um, connections and friends along the way. So that was also great. Um, speaking of the SESTA FOSTA policy, do you think you can tell us a little bit more about the policy and how it's affected sex workers and if that policy has changed? Sure. So SESTA FOSTA is still in place. Um, it has not been repealed. At the most they've done to change it right now is there's a bill to examine the impacts of SESTA FOSTA, which isn't great, but I guess that's the best we're going to be able to get right now. But what SESTA FOSTA was designed to do was to prevent online sex trafficking. And so it created a lot of um, policies and laws and regulations. So now essentially talking about anything that would be considered to be promoting prostitution, quote unquote, is now illegal. Um, And so this was supposed to be done to end sex trafficking. But in reality, what it's mostly done has uh, made it difficult for sex workers to be able to advertise online. But uh, something that, um, you know, one of the other things that sex workers have traditionally done is have like bad date lists of clients who are you know, abusive or, um, you know, overstay time or, you know, just generally um, not great clients. And so those sort of lists right now are also technically speaking illegal to share. It's illegal to be sharing like tips and ideas and um, things about safety culture. Those sort of things are illegal in addition to actual online advertising. And so what this has ultimately done has pushed trafficking further underground um, because obviously people who are you know, pimps and human traffickers, they're not going to stop what they're doing just because they can't advertise online anymore. And then unfortunately, sex workers who used to advertise online who can't do it anymore are now primarily doing um, like street-based sex work if they couldn't get into another form of online work, such as, you know, like webcam work or doing phone work or something like that. And so the amount of sex workers doing outdoor work has dramatically increased because of SESTA-FOSTA. And of course, outdoor work is like fucking ridiculously dangerous, right? So you're at risk of police harassment and police abuse. And you're also at risk of just because you're working on the street of, you know, being assaulted, being robbed, you know, and assaulted both physically and sexually. And so the danger has just increased dramatically. And there's not really, with the way the laws are set up and the way the relationships between police and sex workers are, if you are assaulted while working on the street, you can't really go to police because you are now at risk of arrest yourself because technically you were committing a crime when you uh, had a crime committed against you. So yes, that's the in a lot of ways has just created um, a lot of stress on the sex work community. So based on your experiences on mobilizing for resources for sex workers, how are organizations like SWAP helping sex workers during COVID-19? I know you just said that people, uh, sex workers are outside and that's very dangerous. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, Well, one of the things that we can do right now is trying to do, uh, you know, outreach to street-based workers. And so this includes, like, putting together, um, you know, uh, like, different, like, kits of things to do. So it's, like, you know, condoms, you know, like, hand sanitizer, sanitizing wipes, things like that. In addition to trying to hand out food, uh, when we, you know, different places, if they have the money to hand out, they'll just hand out the money, um, handing out gift cards and things like that, because it's, 
you know, right now, I mean, always, but especially with COVID, you know, if we can raise enough money so somebody can just, you know, rent a motel room and be indoors for the night and not have to work at all, like that's the most ideal situation. We're trying to do those sort of things as much as we can. And, you know, right now SWAP is, you know, trying to give money to other organizations as well as give money to the chapters SWAP, the national, there's national SWAP, but there's also, you know, chapters in various states. And we're trying to make sure that everyone is as funded as much as they can be. But just because Corona is such a sudden thing and it's a national thing, it's kind of difficult to get funding to do these things. And so, you know, we're doing the best we can in that aspect, trying to keep everybody as safe as possible, but it's really hard. Yeah. And have there been stories about people that have been tested positive, sex workers that you know, or people that have died because of this virus? Um, what happened, what's happening right now in a lot of the communities that I'm affiliated with is that folks are getting sick and they probably have COVID, but because of their, you know, life situations, a lot of folks don't have insurance or they can't afford to access the insurance that they have, or, you know, they can't take time off to go into a hospital. And so folks are just working sick or staying at home being sick with Corona symptoms, but they haven't had Uh, the ability to actually get tested. So I don't think like in the long run, we'll ever know how many sex workers actually had Corona and either survived from it or died from it. I don't think we'll ever get an accurate number, but I do know a lot of people who are showing symptoms, but they cannot access the testing. Yes. And are some sex workers uh, restricted from receiving the, the stimulus check funds? A lot of sex workers will not qualify to get it because of the type of sex work they do, right? So you can't apply as a sex worker if the type of sex work you're doing isn't legal, like off, you know, just off the bat, there's that. A lot of other sex workers have tried to apply, uh, have tried to apply. They said they haven't been able to get it. And a lot of that has to just do with like the framing and the wording of these type of policies. These things are created intentionally to exclude sex workers because sex workers are seen as you know, like immoral or bad in, you know, these, these type of uh, judgments about their sexuality. And so uh, overwhelmingly, most sex workers I know who've applied haven't been able to get it, even if the type of work they do is legal. So that's like people who work in like, um, like porn, people who do, um, who even own like, uh, like sex shops and sex education programs, things like that, even those folks are getting denied. So it's, it's really difficult. I have heard of a couple strip clubs who have gotten approved but they have recently gotten approved. So I'm not sure how that money's going to be dispersed yet, if it's actually going to go down to the dancers and workers, or if it's just like the strip club owner keeping the money. But overwhelmingly, it seems like uh, most people who've applied have gotten denied. That's just really frustrating. And how do you and other sex workers that you organize with challenge the stigma of sex work to legislators? I think one of the biggest things is just uh, through storytelling and telling people our stories, because we are incredibly multifaceted people, people, you know, will see you and be like, oh, that's just a sex worker. And it's like, but a lot of sex workers are also parents and partners. And we have these, you know, amazing other talents. And, you know, I I think a lot of the humanity and the multifacetedness of sex workers gets overlooked a lot. I think that's something that, you know, needs to always be brought to the forefront. And, you know, it's funny because people (laughs) look at my Twitter feed, which is a mess. You shouldn't actually look at my Twitter feed. (laughs) Um, but it's funny you know I yeah I talk about sex worker work a lot too but I'm also on this whole because I'm in quarantine right I'm in this whole baking thing I'll talk a lot about baking you know but I I think that's the sort of thing that sex workers do is because we are multifaceted people and also the situations that created the pathways that led us into the sex work industry 
as often all the times a lot of fascinating discussion because it doesn't fit into the stereotypes of what people think sex workers are or how sex workers behave or what sex workers do, but we're regular people too. Yes. I just wanted to ask you, have you uh, started an OnlyFans account or do, do you see it being of good use right now? Um, I personally do not use that. I know some folks who do. And it's it's kind of a toss-up, honestly. There's folks who haven't gotten into it because that's just not the area of sex work that they're with, and so it's not necessarily something they would excel at. Uh, they don't necessarily have the tools, you know, because you have to have, like, the, you know, like the equipment and the, the clothing and the outfits and the persona and all that, and that's just not necessarily how some folks operate within the industry. And then, of course, also because a bunch of folks are trying to get into the, you know, suddenly into online work because of COVID um, and trying to avoid doing in-person sort of sex work. So it's also a very saturated market in a lot of ways. And so for some people, it's been really successful. Uh, For some people, it's been able to replace their regular income. And for some people, they're not doing very well. But it really seems to be much more like on an individualized basis. So... Because this pandemic is global and we're all getting used to this new type of normal, do you think there will be a change in how sex workers engage with clients, especially since the pandemic hit? Uh, I think that sex workers who can afford more vigorous screening practices will definitely uh, engage in that and will definitely do so. Um, I think that uh, regardless of risk, just the reality of the situation is that folks who have done in-person work, um, particularly street work, are going to continue doing that because they need to. Um, you know, they still need to eat. They still need to survive, whether there's a pandemic or not. So, you know, we do what we have to do. I am really curious to see the strip clubs that have the uh, the that have the, the the dancers outside handing out food, right? So they're keeping the strip club open. Have you seen those? No. Strip clubs where they have um like the kitchen's open and so the customers are just like driving by picking up food but there's like dancers outside dancing while they're handing out food i like i'm okay with that i would love to see that sort of like drive-through situation stay open um, oh my god love it. Um, but you know i think overall it's going to be you know a lot more sex work is going to be online and phone-based more so than it has been historically but i in-person sex work isn't going anywhere that's still going to be a thing yeah So lastly, I just wanted to ask you um, about the red umbrella. Um, So the red umbrella signifies love and protection. Uh, What does the red umbrella mean to you, especially during this pandemic or what you've learned throughout your experiences? I think for me, there's definitely the love and protection aspect. I think another huge aspect of it is just visibility, right? As a red color, you can see it in a group, especially if you have a group of people with red umbrellas, um, which, I, you know, we do that on December 17th, which is the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. You know, so I think the visibility is a huge thing right now because everyone is kind of freaked out about their own communities. But again, like I said, sex, sex workers are multifaceted. There's a lot of sex workers who uh, are in the sex trade because they have disabilities or health issues that prevent them from working, you know, like a straight job, like a nine to five job. You know, um, there's sex workers who, you know, obviously are involved in other communities as far as race goes. There's a lot of trans sex workers. There's a lot of low income sex workers, right? And so sex workers as a diverse group, I think sometimes it's hard 
to see us um, as sex workers as well as our other identities. And so I love the red umbrella just like for the sake of the visibility of saying sex workers' rights is a lot of rights. It's it's a feminist issue and it's a workers' rights issue and it's race issues and it's gender issues and it's all these things. And just that visibility with the red umbrella of like saying, hey, we're going to be seen and not discarded, especially in an era like this, because a lot of sex workers have multiple marginalizations and it's important for those people to have the forefront. So I just love the visibility aspect of like a bright red umbrella in, in the middle of a crowd. This is Leslie. And this is Diane. And you listen to Holding a Red Umbrella During COVID-19 on Rabiosa Medina Radio. Tune in every Monday to hear the latest news on politics, immigration, and girl talk from two Chicago rabiosas. On episode three, we will speak to a Jordanian journalist on his experiences reporting in the Middle East and coming to America. Music was produced by 20 Elbridge and cover art was created by Arte Triste. See you very soon. Besos. Thank you.